Matt Pottinger, he reported for years out of China, served as a Marine in Afghanistan, and worked in the Trump administration, finishing out his term on January 6th as the Deputy National Security Advisor. Matt, welcome to China Talk. Hi, thanks for having me, Jordan. So I want to start by discussing the National Security Council as an institution. Um, I recently ran an interview with Mm. John Gans where we talked about the two models that presidents have run their national security councils on. You kind of have this kind of like regular order style that Eisenhower, maybe like HR and Obama aspired to. And then this kind of like maverick decision making, which I think, you know, started maybe with FDR and ran through the Kennedy, Nixon um, and Trump administrations as well. I'm curious, Matt, for your sort of reflections on the pros and cons of um, those two ways of uh, presidents making national security decisions. Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. So look, I I, I love this topic, actually. Very few people know, uh, you know, just the public in general, what the role of the National Security Council staff is and how it's evolved over the years. And the 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 funny backstory to the NSC is that it was really created uh the idea uh behind those who were who were first pushing for the idea of of a NSC were people who wanted to constrain the president of the United States and and it it was really in response to FDR uh president roosevelt style had had uh had you know really uh worn out its welcome with a lot of career staff, uh, you know, people who were working at the Pentagon. Uh, and uh, uh, FDR famously um, was not a process guy, right? He, he, he didn't like convening uh, staff. He didn't like convening uh, a, a, uh, his cabinet. Uh, he wasn't really all that close to his secretary of state. And he would, he would mostly just direct things Personally, he would write tele, you know, telegrams and letters to generals out in the field, and uh, it it worked well enough in that era. Um, he he defeated, uh, you know, the fascists and and uh, in, in Japan and and in Germany and in Italy in a global war uh, without a joint staff and without an NSC. So I, it's important to remember that NSC isn't necessarily. Uh, a must-have. I think. I think presidents are well served by having a, an NSC, but um, it, it's not that we've always had one. So, so when when the vice president uh, became president, Harry Truman, after the the death of FDR, um, a, a lot of people thought that this would be an opportunity. They they, they underestimated uh, uh, Truman for one thing. They thought that Truman w- would be a, a pushover, um, and so it was really. Uh, Defense Department, you know, War Department became the Department of Defense officials who said, look, we really need to kind of move the Pentagon into the White House. We, we need to take control of, of a process and, and generate a process. But uh, they, they, really, uh, they, they really underestimated uh, Truman. Truman took that uh, creation of an NSC and repurposed it to, to be people that, that were on his own staff. And um, with with the advent of the, you know, once once the uh, Korean War got going, he actually began to use that staff. And then, of course, Eisenhower um, plussed up that staff and really began to run a modern process that that in some shape or form continues to the to the current day. And and so the, I think the, the things that that have to work, irrespective of which model uh, of NSC you, you'd like to use, people it really only works when two things are happening. One, when people remember that it's really the president's staff, even though there are a lot of people on loan from other departments and agencies, they're not there to be liaisons and, uh, you know, uh, uh, plants from, from their departments and agencies. They're there to serve the president. And, and the second is that they have to, they have the, the power to convene the other departments and agencies. That's the superpower of the NSC. Uh, other departments and agencies sometimes try to convene other departments and agencies. It usually doesn't work out very well. It's usually not sustainable. And so the NSC works best when it, it is the, the sole entity that, that has that power to convene. Um, so Matt, in another interview, you mentioned that you were you know, working seven, hour, uh, seven days a week, not eating with your kids. Jake Sullivan recently in a profile 
noted that he was like randomly awake on a Wednesday at 4 a.m. during a home invasion of all things. Um, is there like a problem with a system that, you know, requires its senior most people to be, uh, you know, running themselves uh, ragged in order to get things done? No, it, it, it simply goes with the territory of being a superpower. I, I mean, if we, if we want to, if we want to uh, become a, um, a medium power, <laughs> you know, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll spend a lot less time uh, on these things, right? Yeah, which, I mean, I which guess I don't it, think is the answer. You know, but you, you, you kind of go back to the, like Admiral Nimitz was working eight hour days. Marshall was working eight hour days during World War II. Like it's from a sort of decision making, like organizational design perspective, it seems like there's a lot of weight put on your principals and your deputies in terms of kind of getting the gears going. That's sort of more where I'm, uh, where I was taking this question of, of like, you know, yeah. 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 I mean, I, I think you, 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 it's, it's easy to burn out in those jobs. There's no question. Uh, I, I can't remember. I, I, I was told when I came in to the white house that the, the typical, uh, period was about 18 months that someone would last in a, in a job like senior director or um, even the director jobs, maybe 24 months. Um, you have to pace yourself. There's no question. And you hope that there aren't so many crises that, uh, uh, that you have the luxury of, of being able to, to keep, you know, your Saturdays uh, to your family. But, um, but these jobs are really tough. I mean, even, uh, whether it is a uh, sort of an NSC centric model, like president's president Biden's administration has, um, you know, they have a very large staff. It, it sounds to me like most policy is really made uh, in the NSC. Or if you have a model that's more like what we had in, you know, when I was deputy national security advisor and Robert O'Brien was the national security advisor, we we had slimmed down the staff and were coordinating those big uh, decisions, but we're leaving the secretaries of uh, of departments and agencies to run um, the, the, you know, the implementation of that, of that policy. So either, either way, you're, you're going to, you're, you're still going to be pretty busy. There's just, there's just no way around it. Yeah. Well, let's stay I, I have yet uh, to meet, I, I've yet to meet someone in who's, who's been in the deputy or, or national security advisor slot, or even any of the senior directors, at least the regional senior directors, those, those covering regions of the world who, uh, uh, did not, um, work Un unbelievably tough hours. I, I remember um, Michael Green, who was uh, the Asia senior director for George W. Bush, told me that um, uh, if someone was leaving at uh, you know seven thirty or eight at night, they would joke that you just worked a half day. Um, w one more time on this: the sort of different models you talked about of the like decision making out of the White House versus, uh, you, know, you know, sort of, I don't know, going by like common law and having less of, uh, of the say coming, coming from 1600 Pennsylvania. What, what do you see as the trade-offs there? Well, look, I mean, if you manage to get people that you trust and, and are capable people into the key jobs in the departments and agencies, you shouldn't have to um, run all policy uh, out, out of the White House. In other words, you can, you can run a process where you coordinate that policy and where that policy gets agreed upon through the NSC process. And, um, but, but the implementation is then left to those, those other departments. If, for an ongoing situation, if there is a sense that um, the president doesn't have uh, high trust in uh, the, the bureaucracy to, to, to get those policies implemented, he's going to, he's going to hold far more of the decision-making closer. In other words, things that would be devolved to the, to the agencies end up getting those decisions end up getting made in the Oval Office or, um, close to the Oval Office. Gotcha. Um, yeah, I mean, I, for, for, for my money, I, I, it, the system, when we had actually reduced the size of the NSC, uh, look, just to give some perspective to listeners. So when President Kennedy uh, had his NSC, he had 12 staffers, okay, 12 people. And, and he, he, he pretty much made policy, you know, himself, right? Um, Jimmy Carter had 35. Um, President Obama had somewhere around 240 staff. Uh, George W. Bush had about 100. 
So when by by the end of the Trump administration, by the, the final year of the Trump administration, we were much closer to what George W. Bush had in his first term, not his second term, but under Condi Rice in the first term. I think we had 105 uh, versus the 100 that he had. Today, I don't know what the figure is, but I, I suspect it's much closer to where it was under President Obama when he left office, sure. you know, above 200. Um, so, Matt, one of the things I really respect about you is you're really in the trenches reading through C speeches and encouraging people to take them seriously. Um, I'm curious if you think Americans should do the same for when Trump talks about uh, flirting with the idea of a dictatorship. <laughs> yeah, look, I, I think I think you should always read a leader, whether it's President Trump or it's uh, Xi Jinping or it's President Biden. Um, the, I, I think that what leaders uh, say extemporaneously and what they say in carefully crafted speeches both matter. And um, and, and it's important to, to to weigh them in the context in which they're delivered. You know, sometimes if it's a 3 a.m. tweet, <laughs> you, 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 you can you both uh, understand that it's probably a uh, impulsive and but also an honest expression of, of an impulse at that moment. But at the same time, it's, it, it doesn't always translate into hard policy uh, the way that I think um, crafted speeches that are set pieces that are delivered at the State of the Union or what have you are, are usually uh, pretty, pretty good expressions of um, where, where uh, a strategy is headed for an administration. With, with Xi Jinping, the, the, the thing that I think we've, we've tended to do uh, a bit too much of is, is to project onto him what we think he's going to do um, by looking at signals that are actually not coming out of his mouth or they're coming out of his mouth in in a in a context where we should be more skeptical. For example, if he's speaking to a crowd at Davos to a bunch of uh, you know Western business leaders, uh, or for that matter, if he's speaking in San Francisco at a at a you know a, a high paid dinner function at, on, on the sidelines of the APEC forum like last November, we we should take be a bit more skeptical of the message. Uh, that he's delivering there because we know it's it's meant for our ears. I I think we get a lot more mileage looking at what in in you know a, a Leninist system when the leader is speaking to his own bureaucracy. That I I think we should be giving far greater weight to those speeches. But those speeches tend to get ignored uh, usually because they're they're often kept secret for a number of weeks or months or years after they're delivered. Uh, so, sometimes we. Um, um, can only find them in Chinese language uh, publications. They they intentionally refrain from translating into English those speeches or statements by Xi, or or only portions of them get uh, translated. And sometimes the the translations are selective or even uh, manipulative. They they tend to make things sound a little bit softer in in the English uh, than uh, in in the Chinese. So, uh, yeah, I. It doesn't matter if you're talking about President Trump or or Xi Jinping. People would be wise to try to to try to listen to primary uh, statements. Primary sources are uh, more important than things that are filtered through media. So, speaking of primary sources, I want to take it back to your CNAS article with Michael Flynn, um, which actually got me to apply for an internship <laughs> at the DIA back in 2011. I think. Um, <laughs> Did you do it? You didn't. You didn't. They, do didn't, the they didn't take me. I, Oh, shoot, shoot. I don't know. I guess I wasn't a They're compelling lost. candidate. The, 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 <laughs> I want to be a journalist for the intelligence committee and agency hadn't filtered up to their uh, rec uh, college intern recruiting process at that point. Um, sure, sure. Uh, Matt, reflections on that document 15 years later? Yeah, well, I haven't read it for a long time, but it was a um, it, it was a uh a labor of love. I mean, I, I had just finished a deployment at the battalion level down in Helmand province and uh, had uh, the advantage of having been able to cover a lot of ground in that job. I was uh, working as the S2. I was the intelligence officer for a logistics battalion, but spent a lot of my time uh, with uh, British forces, um, with uh, a Marine rifle battalion, spread out across a, a pretty large area. Uh, we had, you know, 
uh, poppy fields all over the place growing opium and and uh which which was funding the uh you know the Taliban were e- extracting a, a tax from those opium growers i you know i i caught a uh, a a surprisingly broad glimpse of a of of for you know a lieutenant of uh this counterinsurgency that we were trying to wage and that which wasn't going terribly well uh when when i was there from 2008 to 2009 so in mid 2009 i i was very quickly deployed again uh to work for Mike Flynn, who was working as the J-2, he was the senior intel officer working for General Stanley McChrystal, who was the ISAF commander, you know, the commander for U.S. forces and allied forces in Afghanistan, um, a great leader. And uh, I, I was allowed to, to be uh, their focused telescope. In a sense, I, I covered ground all over uh, the battlefield, every region that where we were fighting, uh, interviewing all of most of our allies, you know, dozens of of allies talking to uh, Afghan troops and aid workers and humanitarian uh, groups and the, and the rest. And, and that, that report was sort of a synthesis of what um, we believed my co-authors and I, Paul Batchelor and, and uh, general Flynn and I believed were uh, things that we weren't getting right. And, and of course, I was I was trained from <laughs> the basic school in the Marine Corps that you don't you don't send a memo complaining about what's going wrong without trying to uh, actually offer remedies. So you know a, a heavy part of that that uh, report I don't know it was a ten thousand page report a big portion of it were uh, suggested remedies many of which got adopted some of which didn't and many of which I tried to implement during the the second half of that second deployment that I was in Afghanistan. Um, Matt, do you have a theory of what happened to Michael Flynn or maybe more broadly why Americans in recent years have gotten more entranced by dark explanations of what they see in the news? Well, look, I, I, I have a real affection for Mike Flynn as someone that I fought alongside and who was my commander there. Uh, I, I worked for him briefly at the NSC staff. So I, I, I don't, you know, I think there, um, probably a, a lot of areas uh, where I would uh, disagree with him today on, on, on certain things, but I think he was, uh, I, I think he played a really important role uh, in these wars that we got sucked into uh, in Iraq and Afghanistan. He was, he was iconoclastic in ways. He, he was someone who didn't really care about promotion. He was someone who really wanted to win. And you find that sometimes wartime generals are a very different breed from successful peacetime generals. And I think Mike Flynn is, is a quintessential wartime general. He's someone who's willing to try uh, to take significant risk uh, to, to uh, dump orthodoxies, to try to experiment with new things to get things done. He, 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 played, a, he played a major role in, uh, over those years that we were uh, you know, fighting, fighting really tough wars in those two countries. Gotcha. Um, coming back to Trump, uh, in your uh, uh, testimony, you said that our national security was harmed in a different way by the 6th of January and that it is imbe- and that it has emboldened our enemies by giving them ammunition to feed a narrative that our system of government doesn't work and that the United States is in decline. Um, you know, curious for your reflections on what a Trump administration would do both to that narrative as well as like the broader correlation of American national power. Well, look. I mean, January six was uh, was a disaster, right? I mean, it. it um, I, I those that statement that you just uh, repeated from me. I still still believe. Um, I, I'm not gonna. I'm, I'm not going to uh, um, uh, try to guess what a second term for President Trump exactly would look like. Uh, you know, the, Americans have uh, available all the information that. You know, I have available uh, to to myself. I think people will make a, a decision, and you know, I'm, I'm not going to try to uh, um, front run uh, this election uh, by trying to predict how it's going to turn out or what what the consequences of that election will be. But uh, we are we're a democracy. If if uh, President Trump is uh, is elected, that means he has a mandate, uh, just as I think President Biden today has. Uh, a mandate because he was uh, elected in 2020. Sure. So, I mean, I feel like you have a few more data points, at least from the perspective of U.S.-China relations, 
um, you know, can we do a, a branching scenario analysis of what uh, four more years of Trump and she could potentially look like? How are you thinking about the sort of different tracks that we could potentially um, potentially get on? Well, I mean, one of the interesting things is that th there, are, there are many aspects of President Biden's policy that were uh, continued from from the Trump years. I think I think President Biden's policy is closer to President Trump's policy on China than it is uh, similar to President Obama's policy when when President Biden was the vice president. That that's interesting. That I mean that that tells me that um, uh, we must have gotten some things right and some things that uh, are now viewed as a consensus. You know, ha have have the benefit of a consensus, a bipartisan consensus for. Um, Look, I think that if President Trump comes back in, he's going to focus on trade. It's my instinct, just from knowing him and knowing what, uh, and fo you know, following some of his public comments during his campaign. Um, I, I think that um, the the 2018 tariffs that he put in place, um, and it, remember, if you go back and remember how why those tariffs were put in place, it was a it was an investigation under. What's called Section 301 of of the of our trade law, 1970s trade law. Uh, Bob Lighthizer, the the uh, trade representative working for President Trump, did a, a thorough investigation of Chinese theft of American intellectual property, and proposed tariffs as a remedy after he completed that that uh, multi I don't know it was six plus months of investigation. President Trump uh, accepted the uh, the uh, recommendation to impose tariffs, and originally it was only tariffs on about thirty five billion dollars worth of Chinese trade. Sounds like a big number, but it's actually a small por portion of what China exports to us. If China had not retaliated, uh, we might have been at thirty five or fifty billion dollars worth of uh, exports getting tariffed, as opposed to hundreds of billions of dollars getting tariffed. But China thought that it could. Uh, I think they misread. President Trump, they thought that they could kind of uh, bully him uh, by uh, mobilizing the American business lobby to to undermine him, to mobilize the farm lobby uh, to mobilize against him. And all of that uh, backfired for China. And we ended up uh, in this escalating uh, tariff war. And those tariffs are still in place today. If President Trump comes back, I suspect he's going to look at, well, for one thing, I, I'll, I wouldn't be surprised if he completes the uh, investigation that uh, Catherine Tai, President Biden's U.S. trade rep, uh, inaugurated but never completed. And that was a, a Section 301 investigation into illegal or unfair Chinese subsidies and, and the, the, the harm that American, America's economy is, uh, has suffered as a result of uh, these subsidies. I, I wouldn't be surprised if uh, that baton gets picked up where it was dropped. Uh, by the way, I doubt it was Catherine Tai who who dropped that baton. I think it was more of a, of a battle between the Treasury Department and the U.S. Trade Rep. And the the stalemate sure. was that we would keep the Trump era tariffs, which are still in place, but we would we would not uh, proceed with a a second investigation into uh, abusive trade practices by China. I think President Trump will probably pick up that baton and run with it. Uh, that'll be the most. Um, uh, obvious area where I think you'll see a significant shift. Um, in uh, Josh uh, Rogan's Chaos Under Heaven, um, he, I think, did a pretty evocative portrayal of, you know, you just mentioned the Biden competing camps. Trump also had competing camps when it came to uh, uh, thinking about how to engage with China. Do you, like, reflecting back, do you have, like, a heuristic on how those decisions ended up resolving themselves? Yeah, it's funny. I mean, on trade, President Trump came into office with with a pretty clear idea um, uh, that, I mean, he, his views of China were heavily animated by his his sense that we were had been taken advantage of for decades, uh, which, of course, we have been. But um, on some of those other, the, those thornier issues that played out over time, I, I think, I think that, that Xi Jinping and uh, w in many ways drove U.S. policy into a tougher um, uh, sort of mode uh, in response to some of the things, some of the really egregious steps that that uh, China had been taking under Xi Jinping. Uh, just for a couple of examples, uh, think about what happened in Hong Kong, right? <laughs> you, have, uh, 
you have a you have a treaty between the United Kingdom and China registered at the UN, the Sino-British Joint Declaration that guaranteed that Hong Kong, upon being handed back to China from the British in 1997, would enjoy 50 years of a high degree of autonomy. Um, that that was uh, prematurely uh, uh, stilettoed in the heart. Uh, you know, less than halfway to that 50-year mark. Uh, and and China basically undermined the basic law, undermined uh, the rule of law, undermined free speech, uh, undermined the high degree of autonomy that they had promised Hong Kong. Um, you look at how China handled COVID, right? I mean, you've seen probably some of the more recent reporting just on on things like uh, how much China knew in December of 2019, and yet uh, it was providing flagrantly false information to the World Health Organization about about this uh, virus that was circulating and how dangerous it would be. Uh, so, you know, so you're, you're lobbying, lobbying countries to keep their international flights open, even as China canceled uh, domestic travel uh, uh, from Wuhan, that, that kind of stuff. So I, I think that it became, you know, at, at a certain point, you know, any, well, I, I would say President Trump became pretty fed up uh, with, with, um, uh, things that were unrelated, not only related to trade, but that went far beyond trade. So, um, uh, you know, Matt, what types of U.S.-China dialogue make sense? And what is the right posture for, uh, you know, what sure. is the right posture for an American president to take when engaging uh, directly with Xi's China? So so the, the first thing is you, you do want high-level engagement. When I say high-level, you really want top-level engagement. You want President Biden to be talking to Xi Jinping uh, on on a, a reasonably frequent basis. Just and and he he is doing that. He's made an effort to uh, uh, to try to keep a dialogue going. They've met twice in person, uh, and uh, they've had a number of phone calls or video calls. President Trump, same thing. I can't remember how many times he and Xi Jinping met. It was maybe five or six times, plus uh, you know a significant number of phone calls. That is, that is good. You look it, it again. You're dealing with a Marxist-Leninist system where there's one guy who makes all the important decisions. You you want to have access to that guy, and you, you you the only way that you can really know that things that are important to the United States are being communicated to the top, or if the president is talking to his counterpart in Xi Jinping. Um, and by the way, I I I, I don't think that a, a lot of uh, things that are communicated below that level are making it back to Xi Jinping. And I suspect that the Biden administration or some, some officials would agree with that statement. That that was the uh, that was the conclusion we we drew uh, during the Trump years. So so high level top level communication is actually really important, and I and I I support it whether it's President Trump or President Biden. What what is uh, a lot less uh, uh, helpful are these sort of mid level dialogues. They're usually you know we've had a lot of them over the last quarter of a century. You've had. The JCCT like joint, whatever it stood for, that was led by the Commerce Department, this security and economic dialogue. Sometimes it was called the economic and security dialogue. It's almost like people are just taking words and randomly uh, mixing them together and christening these, these new dialogues. Those dialogues have not served U.S. interests well at all over the years. Uh, for, for the, the more we spoke at a working level with China, the worse uh, our, the uh, theft of American intellectual property, the, the worse the trade deficit, you know, take your measure. Things only got worse and worse over time. And, and yet we built a larger and larger bureaucracy that was dedicated to uh, engaging at that level. And so it really became a tool for China to sort of string us along, uh, tap us along, uh, as some would say. But um, I, I don't think, I do think that there are things that we ought to have a common interest in. But at the same time, if we have a common interest, it, whether it's dealing with climate change or dealing with terrorism or proliferation risk, it, or, or, or for that matter, a, a future pandemic, if, if China, if Xi Jinping and the Communist Party really believe that those things are in China's interest, then they will do them anyway, uh, or they'll even seek us out for engagement on those things. But the idea that, that it's just that we're not trying hard enough, we're not we're not setting enough nice mood music or, or, or we're not uh, appeasing China uh, sufficiently to draw them into a, a constructive dialogue is, is the wrong kind of thinking. It's just not the way it works. And sometimes it's counterproductive. 
I, I, I've talked in the past about how I did uh, make attempts to open dialogues on some of those topics I just mentioned with China. And, and it, it became clear to us that the CCP viewed those things as um, leverage. In other words, if, if we expressed uh, our concern about non you know proliferation of nuclear weapons uh, or even about uh, the, the risk of a future pandemic, China would try to extract other wholly unrelated concessions from the United States as the price of admission for having conversations with them about things that are ostensibly in, in our common interest. So that again goes to the nature of that system. We're not dealing with with our you know a fellow democracy here, where where, where there's a a baseline of trust that people are working for the good of uh, of of their people. Leninist systems don't work for the good of their people. They work for the, whatever party the the communist party uh, wants to maintain power, and that is that is always the the first and last thing that they're thinking of. Um. Coming back to taking leaders' words seriously, we've had some, I guess you could say, uncomfortable uh, comments out of the uh, the Trump campaign with respect to Taiwan. Um, Matt, curious for your sort of reflections um, in your time in the White House on how uh, issues around uh, uh, Taiwan Taiwan played out. Yeah, I mean, look, uh, over the course of the administration, I would say President Trump became more um, more focused on. Um, what a disaster it would be for the United States, uh, for both in terms of our prosperity and in terms of our national security, if Taiwan were to be coercively annexed. So um, I, I, I do think that his um, his understanding of that focus on that um, increased over, over those years. I, you know, when President Trump has spoken publicly in office and out of office, he has tended to revert to what I would call, you know, this this idea of strategic ambiguity, which has really been U.S. policy for forty years. He, he said that he's not going to telegraph in advance exactly what he would do. Um, that that that's fair, more or less, in keeping with policy up until President Biden. President Biden's gone farther. Um, President Biden has said four times now, quite quite clearly, quite deliberately. You know, you could say that it was. It was, uh, you know, an off the cuff remark the first or second time, but he said it sure. four times that he so, would commit U.S. forces to to defend Taiwan if Taiwan were attacked. So I, I think that constitutes a graduation from strategic ambiguity, um, irrespective of how spokesmen try to spin it in that administration. The president has spoken. And according to the, the Constitution, the, the president um, uh, is the one with the authority to speak on on those matters. Uh, so what's your what's your personal take, Matt? Is should strategic ambiguity be in the dustbin of history, or is there still value to the concept? Yeah, look, I, I I guess I'd say I don't think any president or any candidate for the presidency should back away from uh, President uh, Biden's stance, um, and that there there is um, um, you don't want to draw a red line unless you mean to back it. But I think that the stakes are so high. That if if Taiwan were to be invaded, um, it would make what's happening in the Middle East and in Ukraine right now uh, look like you know child's play by comparison. I think I think the effects would be uh, quite dramatic for uh, employment and uh, and prosperity and security for the United States. So I, I I don't think we should back away from the the, the rhetoric that President Biden has uh, delivered. Um. Matt, what's your take on uh, how Beijing is likely to and how American leadership should kind of price in a future in which China's growing a lot slower than people maybe would have expected five years ago? Uh, slower growth is a new normal for China. Um, e even if even if uh, Xi Jinping uh, moves to try to stimulate parts of the economy that have that have uh, really gone dormant, um, like uh, you know the real estate sector. Um, it it's not going to um, uh, be anything like the dynamic economy that it was uh, before the Xi Jinping era, and I expect it to continue to grind slower. Uh, I'm I'm very skeptical that the Chinese economy grew uh, in 2022, uh, and uh, 
you know, the, the 5.2 or whatever it was, 5.3, 5.2% uh uh, a bit of a stretch as well, I think. And, and, and the markets would agree with me judging from what's happening with uh, foreign money right now. It's, it's exiting China. You've, you're seeing a net outflow of uh, both sort of passive stock market investment and also fixed direct investment or foreign, foreign direct investment, that is. So um, uh, that will slow, that will hamper the long-term aspirations of Xi Jinping, but I don't think it will do anything to hamper his near to medium term aspirations. And that's why we're living in a very dangerous decade right now, in my view. Uh, usually when NSC staffers end up in books, it's like not in a particularly positive light, um, but you've had so many nice things written about you, Matt. Is there like a secret you can tell everyone, uh, you know, all the PR folks or like people living in the bureaucracy? No, I, I, I've I've had my my share of uh, of pretty nasty uh, <laughs> stuff written as well. So so uh, I I haven't I haven't weighed uh, the negative to the positive. But um, um, I don't know. Look, I've I, <laughs> I believe that uh, it's good for people to want to serve in those jobs. I'm I'm very proud of my service uh, on the NSC staff. Um, I'm proud of what we got done. Um, I uh, am proud of my colleagues that I worked with, and I, I worked very hard to try to um, maintain a good working relationship with a pretty broad range of people. Uh, maybe that maybe that helped a lot uh, in, in that sense. I, I remember someone once told me that you should try to have a short memory uh, when you work in those jobs. And by, what, what I took that to mean and what I tried to put into practice was when when I was occasionally double crossed or or simply lost uh, honest arguments, I, I didn't hold grudges uh, against uh, colleagues in in other de departments and agencies. I tried to continue working with them and and tried to have a short memory about those things. And it, it'll it just allows you to get more things done. I think. Gotcha. Uh, last one for you, Matt. So. We haven't really had a generational wake-up call, like a, like a Kennedy inaugural or a 9-11 to get people motivated to work on China competition adjacent issues. Um, I'm curious, you know, maybe for your pitch, as well as like what you think could be a, a trigger on the horizon that's like short of World War III, um, that where you get a kind of like generational groundswell of interest in um, uh, the topics that you and I think about all day. Well, you know, I, I would have hoped that COVID would have been, a, a, you know, enough of a um, of a wake up call. But but it really um, uh, we ended up just tearing each other apart uh, during COVID rather than coalescing to a, a sense of national purpose. Um, I, I'm waiting for that moment <laughs> to, you know, for us to coalesce. I, I think there are promising steps, given that there's been continuity in the China policy or at least significant strands of continuity from Trump to Biden. And I, and I hope that continues in, in a second Trump or a second Biden administration uh, or, or, you know, but um, I, I think that we have to do a better job of recognizing um, how many, you know, how many of our red lines or what, what should have been red lines have been crossed, you know, whether it was the theft of our intellectual property or it is China's um, conniving on the fentanyl trade, uh, which kills, not only does it kill 100,000 Americans a year, but it, it leaves uh, whole communities destroyed. Uh, the people who don't die, but are hooked on this stuff. Um, just the, the bad faith in which China uh, managed the uh, COVID crisis. They viewed it, as, viewed it as an opportunity to acquire greater leverage over democracies. Uh, but, you know, withholding um, important drugs or hypodermic needles or uh, personal protective equipment, um, you know, it's, at some point you just uh, I'm waiting for that moment where people are so fed up with, with this that that we start to to press a little bit more aggressively our, um, our our interests. I think that that would actually be stabilizing, by the way. It's it's I've said that one of the paradoxes of, of a Marxist Leninist system is that the, the more comfortable it is, the more aggressive it becomes. 
you don't you don't want Beijing to feel that they're able to be the protagonist in the story, calling all the shots, uh, supporting uh, the largest war in Europe since World War II. Are you kidding me? Uh, they're they're the main propaganda, diplomatic, and material supporter for that war. Uh, they're the, um, the major propaganda, diplomatic, and material supporter of the Iranian regime, uh, which just uh, uh, blew up a platoon of of uh, of American soldiers and killed three of them. Uh, this is outrageous stuff. And Beijing is on the wrong side of uh, of a lot of these things. Uh, so um, I, I'm I'm still waiting for that moment. Uh, I I think it will come, <laughs> but. Uh, I hope it doesn't take a, a, a tragedy uh, on the order of some of the things we saw in the 20th century uh, for us to get there. Maybe with our last two minutes, Matt, since you brought it up, like the idea, you know, was there what what was it about the timeline that ended up playing out with COVID where it sort of led us into the um, politicized uh, trajectory that it ended up being? I mean, you know, we we'll, how do, you, how do you divide the blame on that from, uh, you know, all the different players yeah. and what 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 could have gone better? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that our public health bureaucracy is not geared still to this day uh, to handle uh, a fast moving, um, dangerous pandemic. So we, we've got big work to do. I don't think that's been fixed under the Biden administration. Um, we, we We've got real problems with the public health bureaucracy. Number one. Number two. The world is engaging in incredibly dangerous research, uh, this so-called gain-of-function research, where viruses are given uh, the attributes that would make them more infectious to human beings. Uh, the, the juice is not worth the squeeze, as we used to say in the Marine Corps. Um, that's not to say that there shouldn't be any gain-of-function research, but it should be uh, high-reward, low-risk gain-of-function research uh, used on animal models and, and uh, not on not on human uh, type tissues. Um, we've done nothing uh, to lower the danger. You know, someday if we discover that this was a natural occurring virus, although I, I think the default is very clearly that it was a, an inadvertent laboratory accident. Uh, you know, there's more and more uh, evidence and circumstantial evidence falling on that side of the ledger. But even if even if it was natural. Why wouldn't we be taking steps to try to mitigate against both uh, sources of, of a dangerous disease? That is, to stop doing really dangerous scientific research and also to try to keep people, um, uh, you know, away from, uh, you know, uh, wild, wildlife in ways that, that could promote a natural spillover zoonotic uh, origin pandemic. Yeah, I mean, I guess the big puzzle for me is like, you know we have Republicans voting down those bills um, that would have would have put more funding into nasal sprays and and the sort of, you know, uh, uh, future looking analysis of wastewater and all that good stuff that would help us set us up for the next one. And, you know, we got there somehow. Yeah. Um, but uh, it is a definitely unfortunate. Look, I'm, I'm, I'm a big believer that we should be building surveillance uh, for these things. The technology has gotten to a point where you can surveil nature um, w without having to go grab bats and swab sure. them and bring them into urban centers. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about passive uh, testing, as you mentioned, of wastewater and, and things in the environment that would tell you trigger an uh, anomalies. It's, it's testing wastewater on airplanes and so forth. I, I think we need to be doing a, a lot more robust uh, work in, in that area. Um, but uh, maybe we'll leave it at that. Uh, Matt Ponger, you got a song to take us out on? Oh, a song? Yeah. Um, what you want me to sing? I don't think I should do that. Yeah, you don't I think have it's to sing. Be, well. Just um, uh, I don't know, uh, a, a song that reflects your experience in the Trump administration, the future of U.S.-China relations. Uh, I don't know, re related to one of the themes we we got into, the nature of the NSC. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um. Well, look, I I'm I'm a jazz fanatic. My, both of my sons are named for jazz musicians, so um, I, I think that um, uh, may, maybe I'll, I'll leave it with the uh, the modal uh, improvisation of "So What." Thanks for being part of China Talk. Thanks again.